you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't, the text, this morning's message, is in the bulletin in the notes. You can follow along with that as well. 1 Corinthians 15. And with the time that we have this morning, there's so much we could say about the resurrection of Jesus. There's so much that could be um, studied and looked at. So much scripture focuses on that. This morning, we're just going to look at the foundational centrality of the resurrection of Christ. The foundational centrality of the resurrection of Christ. And what I mean by that is this. There are certain aspects of the Christian faith that are in the center. They're the core of our faith. And there are other aspects of the faith which are true and necessary and important, but are a little further removed. Um, I once heard someone complain about... Um, conservative Christianity stating that in his view, and he thought this was a bad thing, um, certain Christians would treat the faith like a brick wall, and if certain bricks were taken out, the wall would come down. This gentleman was trying to rather liken Christianity to a trampoline with many springs. And that, and that may be the case with some truths, although I, I doubt it. But we're looking at one of those brick wall statements. And what we're about to read in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul will say in no uncertain terms, if you lose the resurrection, you lose Christianity. If you lose the resurrection, go home, give it up. There's no point. This is a truth by which our faith stands or falls. And so we will see the foundational centrality of the resurrection of Christ. Now our text we're to look at is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19, but I'd like to start further back in the chapter at verse 1. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, because he begins by laying a foundation of the gospel, which is always a very good place to start. Again, there's, there's much truth in the Christian faith, and Paul starts 1 Corinthians 15 identifying core central truth. He says that, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I declared to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I've worked harder than any of them, though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then he goes on. And so in this section, Paul is addressing an error at the church at Corinth. It's the error of the denial of the bodily resurrection of believers. The Christians at Corinth were not in doubt about Christ's resurrection. Um, they believed he rose from the dead. But what they were not sure about is whether there was an afterlife, whether or not there is a resurrection, whether or not after we die, we go on. And so Paul, using a form of reasoning called reducto absurdium, which is to take your opponent's viewpoint and force it to yield ridiculous results. It's as if to say, we saw it, if what you're saying is true, then the following also must be true. And he tries to demonstrate to them the dire consequences such a belief would have. And in doing so, he entertains the possibility, well, if, if, if the dead are not raised, then Jesus isn't raised. And if Jesus isn't raised, then what follows? And so, again, the point this morning is to see the foundational importance and centrality of the resurrection of Christ. Now, Paul puts his points negatively and what I've done is for the three points we're going to look at this morning, I've tried to flip them around positively. So the first point to look at is that the resurrection of Christ is grounds our faith in true historical reality. It grounds our faith in true historical reality. Paul writes in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, Christianity is not first and foremost a system of ethics. It's not a worldview. It's not a way to live. It isn't something that gives comfort to people first and foremost. It is all of those things. But first and foremost, Christianity makes claims about space and time, specifically space and time about 2,000 years ago, that are either true or they're false. They're either historical realities or they are lies. There's no room here then for personal religion. This isn't a matter of, well, it's true for me or it's not true for you. Either the tomb is empty, neither Jesus Christ, after dying on a cross, rose on the third day, or he's dead in a ditch somewhere in Palestine. Those are the only options. And it's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of, well, it's true for me or it's true for you. It is either a historical fact or it is not. And Paul makes it clear that whether or not it is a historical fact, everything hangs upon that. And I want to stress this point because we live in a day where everyone is comfortable with what we believe as long as it's just our own belief. But no one treats that with other things. You know, well, do you believe in gravity? Well, gravity is true for me. Um, I don't know about you. No, no one treats things like that. Um, and, and so... Whereas there are aspects of Christianity where there is an ethic and there is hope and there are all these other things. At the center of Christianity is Christ. 
And the central questions to be answered about Christ is who is he? And is he dead or alive? Is he the son of God? Or is he just a man? Is he still dead somewhere in Palestine? Or is he the risen Lord of glory? And the resurrection is the key piece to this. Because the resurrection vindicates Jesus' claims to who he was. The resurrection vindicates his claims to what he did. And in this sense, Christianity stands largely separated from any other religions. Because if you, if you lose this one fact, if Christianity just becomes a way for people to get comfort and hope, a personalized religion, and we let go of the historical claims, the, it falls apart. Paul is clear on this point. It falls apart. It is either objectively true or it is worthless. I mean, notice that. Paul says, your faith is in vain. We of all men are the most to be pitied. And then down in, in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul has no use, no room for Christianity that who cares if it's true? It gives your life meaning. Who cares if it's true? It, it gives you purpose and hope. Paul says, forget that. Either this is true and a reality, or it's worthless. In fact, we'll see that he says it's worse than worthless if it is not true. And, and so that's the first thing I want everyone here to think about. Forget whether this gives you comfort. Forget whether this gives your life reason and hope. Is it true? Is it true? And, and, and I want to challenge you, by, by the time you leave here this morning, to, to settle this question in your own heart. Who is Jesus, and where is he right now? Who is Jesus, and where is he right now? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Lord of glory? Was he raised from the tomb 2,000 years ago with many eyewitness accounts? Or was he not? The, the, the only answer that is truly insane is to say, well, it doesn't matter. Paul says, look, it's either true and embrace it and we live appropriately or we give it up and go home. And so I just want to challenge you this morning to, to resolve this issue once and for all. Who is Jesus and where is he? Has he indeed been raised from the dead? Because if he's been raised from the dead, that, that validates all his other claims. To deity, to being the one way to God. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or he's just another would-be Messiah who has come and gone. Those are your options. Secondly, we see that the resurrection of Jesus is foundational and central to our faith because it is essential for the forgiveness of our sins. We make such a huge deal, and we should, of Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we remember the crucifixion of Jesus where he was nailed to the tree. And he willingly took upon himself the sins of his people. He, he bore God's wrath for our sin. He became our substitute, our scapegoat, our propitiation. And he removed God's wrath. He absorbed it. He cried out, it is finished. And yet, according to Romans 4, 23 through 25, the resurrection was equally essential in our forgiveness. Listen to this. But the words that is counted to him were not written for his sake, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered up 
for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The way it works is this. The payment was made on Friday. And the receipt for the payment was made on Sunday. The payment, the absorbing of God's wrath for our sin was made on the cross on Friday. And on Sunday, it is as if God the Father said, paid in full, satisfied. And because Jesus was sinless, because death could not hold him, he rose from the grave victorious, vindicating what he did on Friday. It's almost the receipt, if you will, of payment. And it is necessary, according to the text. It is necessary. Because Jesus needed to be God. If just a man died for a man, at most he might save a man. But for one man to die for many, for one man to die for all, that man would need to be God. And the resurrection proves that. The resurrection demonstrates the Father is pleased with him, that Jesus is just not another sinner dying for his own sins, but rather he is who he says he was, who John the Baptist says he was. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And the resurrection proves all that, vindicates all that. It is how the Father ascends him into the, the highest role. According to Philippians 2, therefore God the Father has bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus' own claims. It's the proof that his payment was received, that God the Father was satisfied with it, that it was enough, that it was finished. And so it is essential for our faith. It is central and foundational to our faith. First and foremost, because our faith is rooted in historical claims and realities. Our faith cannot be separated. Secondly, it is essential for the forgiveness of our sins. And thirdly, because Jesus' resurrection gives us confidence to live radically selfless lives. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us confidence to live radically selfless lives. You see this in verse 19 and 32, where Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. And then down in 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now Paul says it negatively. But I want you to flip that around. Paul's logic is this. I'm living, Paul says, a certain way. I'm living a way such that if there is no resurrection, if I don't get raised, if I don't go to be with him in glory when I die, then my life makes no sense. The reason Paul is able to fight with wild beasts at Ephesus, the reason why Paul can endure beatings and sorrows and sufferings and persecutions is because he knows that this life is not all there is. He has seen the risen Lord, and therefore he has confidence he will be raised. And so what can you do to him when the Lord will resurrect him? And so it gives him the confidence to live that way. But the, but the implication is this, that if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if we own this, if it, if it moves from head knowledge to heart knowledge, if we embrace it by faith, it will affect the way we live. 
See, this is really the failure of Pascal's wager. You may, you may have heard of Pascal's wager. He was a 17th century f- French philosopher, and it was an argument he gave, put forward, to try to persuade people to faith, and he would say this. If I am right about my claims about Christianity, then you gain everything. If I'm wrong, what do you lose? If, if, if there is no God, and you die and you're wrong, what do you lose? Conversely, if you're wrong, if you are right, if the atheist is right, and you, and you embrace Christianity, well, you know, you, you, you give some time, you give some money. It's not a big loss. But if the atheist is wrong, well, then he loses everything. And so Pascal would say, look, you have much to gain and very little to lose. So why would you not, you know, take the safe option? But the problem is Paul, Paul doesn't reason that way. Paul doesn't reason that way at all. Look, look again at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... If Christianity is just a nice way to live your life, it's just a nice way to be a nice moral person with a nice moral family and, you know, have nice meaning and do stuff and get together and your kids go to Sunday school. And if that's all it is, we of all men are the most to be pitied. Now the problem is, as, as Western Christians who don't live with a lot of persecution, who actually live with a lot of wealth and prosperity, Sadly, it's difficult for many of us to be able to echo Paul's sentiment here. I mean, how many of us can say, man, if there is no resurrection, if there is no afterlife, my life makes no sense the way I'm living. Sadly, I think for many of us, Pascal's wager holds true. You know, either way, we're having a pretty decent life. And so for the third point, I just want to challenge you that what Paul is saying here is his confidence in the resurrection, his confidence that Christ has gone before as the prototype, as the first fruits from the dead, and that because of that, you can beat him, you can shipwreck him, you can kill him. It won't matter, the Lord will resurrect him. And because of that, Paul lives a radically selfless life, a radically others-centered life, a radically gospel-focused life, such that if Christianity is not true, Paul says. We're the most pitiable people on earth. So that's a challenge to us because in our first point, we looked at the danger of letting go of the doctrine of the resurrection, but the challenge, I think, for for me and for you is how many of us by our lives deny it? Do we live as though Christ is risen? Can we in any way take part of Paul's sentiment that, man, if Christ is not raised, we of all people are the most to be pitied? Are we living lives that can even begin to approach that statement? Because Paul, is, what he's saying is, he's assuming here, is that there's a logic and a, to, if this is true, then we must live a certain way. To turn over to Matthew 16. This isn't just Paul's contention. This is Jesus' teaching. In Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's just stop right there. This is before the crucifixion. This is before lots of little necklaces with crosses on them. Jesus is saying, let him pick up his instruments of torturous death and follow me. That's what he's saying. That's what his disciples would have heard. There's no association of cross with Christianity yet because Jesus is not crucified. 
So what his disciples would have heard is pick up your tortuous instrument of death and follow me. And then he goes on to explain why. Why on earth would a person want to do this? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then they will pay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so what, what Jesus is saying is this. If you truly believe that there is a life to come that is eternal, then you will not be afraid to lay down your life now for that life to come. And so he says the choice is either we protect and guard our life now and we lose it for eternity. We're not willing to step out by faith. We're not willing to follow Jesus if it costs anything. We're not willing to suffer persecution. We're not willing to go for go our creature comforts. We guard our life now in unbelief because all we trust in is what we can see and we lose the life to come. Conversely, for those who are convinced of the life to come, they, they gladly, what's this, the other parable? They, they sell all that they have to possess the treasure in the field, and they do it with joy. And this is the testimony of the apostles in the early church. We live differently. And so, in, in our first point, we looked at the danger of, of, of capitulating on the doctrine of the resurrection, of making it a matter of personal opinion, well, Jesus rose in my heart, but maybe not in yours. No, it's either historical reality or it's not. In this last point, either our lives validate and testify to our faith in the risen Lord, or just living like everybody else. And so we dare not drop, negotiate, capitulate the truth claim we need to back it up with our living too. That, that's what Paul assumes here. That's what Paul assumes. That his resurrection then, Jesus' resurrection, becomes the proof and the guarantee of our resurrection. And that, that's where the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 goes. This belief that how do we know that there's a life after this? How do we know that the Lord will raise us when we die? Well, because he rose and raised Jesus. Jump ahead in 1 Corinthians 15 to verse 50. And this is, this is what the last songs in the cantata were about, about Jesus returning and us being caught up with him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The, st the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If, if you take hold the fact that Christ is risen, that he is the reigning, risen Son of God and Lord, and that nothing anyone in this life can do to you can ultimately harm you, 
because you're going to inherit the world and you're going to be raised imperishable, then that final exhortation in verse 58 can actually mean something. We can start living differently by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, confident that he will bring us with him to the Father. Therefore, Paul writes, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, by way of summary, we've seen Paul's emphatic statement that Christianity stands or falls on the doctrine of the resurrection. It is either a historical reality or it is a lie. There is no place for a personal religion that's just true for me but maybe not true for you doesn't mean we should be jerks about this. It doesn't mean that we should um, be arrogant. But it does mean that we are unfaithful if we pretend this is just some privatized thing. It's either a scientific historical reality or it is false. And, and Christianity, therefore, is either the life-giving news of reconciliation with God or it is worthless. Second, we see the, the essential nature of the resurrection and our forgiveness of sins, that it is the, the receipt, the guarantee that the Father is satisfied in Christ's death. If you're wondering, can Christ's death pay for my sins? Uh, is it enough for me? Yes. The resurrection is a proof. The Father says, yes, I am satisfied with my Son. His death has satisfied my anger. There is a sufficient and satisfactory substitute available to you that you can receive by faith, by turning to Jesus in faith, trusting in him to be your savior, your substitute. But then we see that such faith that trusts in Jesus, that embraces the resurrection, it lives a radically different life. So that Paul can say, the way I'm living as a result of my faith is absolutely insane. Unless I get raised from the dead after this. Unless there is more to life than this. And so for those of us who know the Lord, for those of us who have received him by faith, that's the challenge for us. Are we living lives that testify to the resurrection or by our living do we deny it? Do we just live like everybody else? It is my hope that the Lord will increase our faith, the Lord will convict our hearts, the Lord will encourage us to really take hold of this truth by faith and live it out in extraordinary remarkable, and frankly, unexplainable to the culture lives of selflessness, of love, so that those watching us can say, how can you live that way? Why are you doing what you're doing? And they can ask us for a reason for the hope that is within us. We're going to sing one final song and celebrating that our Lord is risen. If you would take the, uh, it's on the back of this sheet. Christ the Lord is risen today. To be so kind as to stand for our final song, and then we'll be dismissed.